Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. I uh, just had a fantastic interview with Suzu. He's someone I've been following for a long time and really excited to get him on the pod. Yeah, yeah. So we wanted to get him on for, you know, the dream debate. And we touched on that, of course. Um, but I think we got those answers pretty fast. And then we moved on to uh, DeFi, yield farming, and all the money games that have been going on in the DeFi space. We talk a lot about how Uniswap is kind of this like center focal point of trading activity in Ethereum. Uh, and then we kind of get into uh, broader subjects as to like why DeFi is generating the excitement that it's generating, like why people are able to get returns in DeFi. And then we finish up with the conversation of like money games and yams and yiffy and, and comp and liquidity mining and yield farming and kind of the implications of these things and, and where Sue sees uh, the future of these things on Ethereum. So pretty wide range of conversation, but really dense, lots of good content in here. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of our best interviews very recently. And uh, I mean, just a fantastic resource. Um, ultimately, um, you know, Sue is a professional trader with a ton of resources. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, you know, he is playing in an environment where he is the native hunter, right? So that's not everyone. Again, when it comes to investment advice, none of this ever is investment advice. But, uh, you know, knew, know who you are. If you don't know if you are the sucker at the table, it's you. Um, so be careful out there. Personally, I'm just a sat stacker. Um, you know, you can do whatever speculations you feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's a really good point. We talk about the concept of money games and, and uh, in Ethereum, we've been like digesting the concept of Ethereum as like this massive multiplayer online money game platform. And again, as Christian just said, if you're not sure who the prey is, it might just be you, right? Uh, and so it's, it's take everything with a grain of salt. There are plenty of ways to play the Ethereum DeFi game without risking too much. Uh, but, you know, like all games, they have easy, normal, hard and expert modes. And so don't go throwing your money into DeFi and turning it to expert, right? Keep it on easy mode before you know what you're doing. Anyways, uh, with that disclaimer, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Suzu of Three Arrows Capital. What is up, you guys? I am super excited to have the great Suzu on the podcast. Uh, always amazing to meet a new, uh, incredible person in the space. I know you've been following us since we had uh, your co-founder Kyle on the show uh, a few, I think, like a year ago. Um, but uh, Suzu, uh, founder, CEO, CIO of Three Arrows, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for having me, guys. I love the work you guys do, so I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, Sue, we wanted to get you on. Uh, you know, since being introduced to Three Arrows, really been enjoying a lot of the work that you and Kyle have been putting out there and thought leadership. Uh, and personally for me, uh, I knew you as a, a Bitcoiner, but you and Kyle have really kind of come out strong on the Ethereum side of things as well. Uh, so kind of just curious to learn about, like, what are you here to do in the crypto space? Like, what do you see as your mission and goal and your your place? Um, and uh, and kind of from there, we can get into you know what we think about all of this craziness. Sure, I think for us, we're we're primarily an investment fund, so we're looking to make returns in the markets. And I think that um, depending on the part of the cycle that we're in, that um, either means going very heavily into 
dollars and and BTC and in other parts of the cycle it means going more out the risk curve into more speculative investments in whether that's DeFi, what whether that's like even other layer ones. I think that um, I think that in terms of crypto, more more sort of zoomed out. I think it's uh, from the point of view for us is that uh, we. We think it's definitely a new paradigm in terms of enabling money, and I think it's also a new paradigm in terms of uh, bridging trust or, or or bridging social coordination. I guess you could call it uh, across people. So three hours capital is is you and and your partner Kyle Davies, and that's basically it, right? Like you guys are the two partners, and obviously you guys have employees. And then do you also take investment, or is it just you guys? So so we started in 2012. Um, at that time, we took some investments. We we began to run as partner only about a couple of years after, and uh, we've been mostly so since. Uh, so so right now, it's currently our own money. Although we are we are thinking about what it would look like to raise money because you know as the bull market is beginning, and, and we do get people ask us from time to time if we would manage money. Uh, it's it's something that we're set up for. So 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 we're a master fund. Uh, we're set up to take money, but at the moment, it's just us. Well, I could only imagine that if Three Arrows Capital put an open for business sign on the front of their business, that people would come knocking. So if, if you guys do do that, I, I'm going to pay attention because that, that's going to be pretty fun. So you're an investment fund. So you're in the game to make money, right? You're, you, you want returns, right? And this, this space started off by Bitcoin and Bitcoin in, inherent in its code is like a return giving machine. Right, like you're supposed to make money from Bitcoin because it's got a hard cap, right? And then as people adopt it, then the price goes up, and then there's speculation around that, and then there's investments around that. And you said you started in 2013, and the crypto space has changed over, you know, since 2013 to where we are in 2020. That's seven years. Over those seven years that you've been in the space, and Three Arrows Capital has been in the space, how has your guys' attitudes about this space changed? your guys' strategies with making money and making returns, and also perhaps like your investment thesis as well? I think when we, maybe a couple years ago, we would have said that centralized exchanges uh, are almost surely dominant in every way. And sort of the, the pipe dream of decentralized exchanges were gonna fail for a number of reasons, right? Whether that's latency, whether that's on-chain congestion, whether that's front running, and I think what's um, what's definitely been a big change for us, at least in the past six to twelve months, is that I think we've come to see how DeFi primitives would ultimately be uh, usable and scalable. Not not initially, uh, but over time, the, those building blocks could accrete. Um, and and so we've definitely taken a lot more investments into DeFi protocols, as well as trading on DeFi venues, investing in. Uh, being very active in DeFi, We're one of the most active participants in DeFi at the moment. So that that's been a big shift for us that we we probably wouldn't have foreseen us doing a year ago. Uh, but uh, it's definitely something that we want to continue to do. We've made a couple of key hires in that space as well. So. Do you remember what the catalyst was that um, allowed you to think about DeFi in a new perspective? Um, I think I think. Synthetics actually was one of the earliest projects where at first I thought the idea was fundamentally flawed uh, for a number of reasons. And then as I spoke with the team and I, and I spoke with uh, Arthur Zero X, who's also very active on Twitter, uh, and he, he reached out to me 
uh, and just kind of gave me the whole kind of concept. And I kind of began to see that if you have, if you have peer to pool liquidity, that fundamentally enables a lot more stuff uh, that isn't really possible uh, in, in centralized finance, or at least it's not easily scalable in centralized finance. And so generally our, our bets have been on things that uh, scale really well with uh, peer-to-pool liquidity. So, so I think uh, y, you know, Wi-Fi is another big bet that we've made. And, and I think that there it also scales very well to the idea of uh, people can passively put their money in something that ultimately generates alpha for them, whether that's through transactional fees, but whether that's through be able to route their liquidity to the best opportunities very efficiently and gas efficiently. Uh, so, so I think that's probably our big thesis in DeFi, which is that it, the, the free movement, the, what Andrew Kahn calls the superfluid collateral uh, thesis, where that superfluid collateral thesis is what ultimately is going to accrue value. Yeah, so I mean, I guess, I what what does that mean for Bitcoin? What does that mean for Ethereum? Because I think that, you know, obviously, these are the blue chips at the table here. And um, we know that your fund is not scared to be really big and bullish on both. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so we manage our own money, right? So so we don't really have to think too hard about like, pissing off LPs who are more pro Bitcoin or pissing off people who are more pro Ethereum. I generally see it as, um, if we're entering a new bull market, which I think we are, I, I think that a lot of people are actually being brought in, not by the, the digital gold thesis, but by just the fact that they can earn a higher yield than what they get in the bank. And I, and I think that that's actually a really powerful concept that uh, is, is, um, is quite attractive to people. I, I do think that BTC will do very well in this cycle anyways, from a dollar's point of view. And I think that it is the reserve currency of crypto. So people generally sell back into BTC, but they just want to see BTC move first. So I think that that's why you'll always get these cycles where alts will outperform for several months and then BTC will outperform for two months or three or three months. And it's just that it's kind of the financial activity of the crypto markets. Uh, then fomenting back into BBC. Uh, and you think about it from that point of view, I think there's there's a strong case to be made for a high percentage allocation to both BDC and ETH. And I think that oftentimes people debate too much what, what that percentage should be. I, I'm not a big believer in sort of even a flipping concept. I, I think that it will be very unlikely for Ethereum to flip in Bitcoin for a couple of reasons. But I do think that during many parts of the cycle, Ethereum can outperform quite heavily. Um, then the main question is, will the people that hold Ethereum in that part of the cycle, will they be able to sustain that momentum or will they ultimately still go back to EDC as the sort of the hardest money, right? I mean, if you think about some of the big ICOs and some of the big layer ones, they all sold their ETH to BDC because they know that you know, it's, it's the most, uh, it's, the, it's the safest and it's the, it's the sturdiest. Uh, if that were to change, for, I, the only way I could see that changing would be if BDC had a lot of issues fundamentally down the line, whether that's through uh, through people being very worried about the fee, fee revenues on chain or whether that's something else. So so you and, and Kyle are famous for being pretty just 
neutral and and secular when it when it, in this very tribal space, almost like religious space about their people's preferred assets. The three hours capital seems to be just making money, maximalist and making money, right? But at the end of the day, I don't think you can actually really opt out of that tribalism, right? Because you still have to choose whether you denominate in Bitcoin and Ether, and maybe you choose to denominate in dollars. But I think if you're in this space, you also kind of have to commit to the belief that dollars are kind of a shit coin, right? Like maybe cash is king and dollars are king because dollars are the reserve currency of the world. But the whole entire investment thesis of this space is that we are going to remake currency, remake money, right? So therefore, it's got to be one of the currencies that comes from the space. And it really seems to be that only Bitcoin or Ethereum, Ether are contenders to really fill that that void. And I think baked into your answer was a inclination towards using BTC as the denominated currency for measuring returns. Was all, is all of that correct? I think so. Yeah. I mean, in in general, I think it would be highly contrarian to be denominated in Ether at, at this point in time, given the way that the ecosystem has developed. I think that by being overweight Ether while being denominated in Bitcoin, you can already achieve very high returns. Uh, I think I I do know some funds and some people who are denominated in Ether. And I, and I think that that approach only really works if you're then investing solely in middleware. You know, so DeFi tokens and this kind of thing, because then you can say, my main goal is to invest in these DeFi tokens, and then stack it back into ETH. I think for those guys it makes sense, but but for us, when we're highly diversified in crypto, you know, we we have exchange investments, we have other investments. It's it's quite challenging to say, how how do I make sure I hedge my GUI exposure or my you know my ETH exposure back to that? It would it would make it very difficult to to make a lot of types of investments that we do. So I'm curious, like when you guys in this present moment go to, uh, I guess, point, like when you talk about why you invest in Bitcoin and why you invest in Ethereum, like what would you say are like the elevator pitches for each? Um, would be interested in hearing about Ether first. I think Ether, the analogy I give is it's, it's accruing value from the usage on the Ethereum network itself. So it's, a bit like digital commercial real estate. It's it's not something that needs to be monetized per se. It, it's something where uh, eventually, if there's enough usage on the Ethereum network, then by holding Ether, that is what enables you to stake on the network eventually. And that is what allows you to uh, reap the returns from people using that network. I I think that for me is the most compelling part of it. I think that through that process, Ether will then command some kind of a scarcity premium. Despite not having a hard cap, it will command a uh, scarcity premium uh, because of the fact of that prestige, right? Um, I I personally believe that with scarcity, there there's no true absolute scarcity, right? Even take something like Bitcoin. Yes, there is a hard cap now, but that hard cap is via social consensus, right? And And it's also via... Uh, a belief that that is the most prestigious thing that we want, uh, which is also scarce, right? So there are many scarce things, but there are very few scarce and prestigious things. Uh, and I think Ether ultimately can be both. Uh, and it mainly attains its prestige from being useful. Uh, and now that we're seeing so many stable coins, so much DeFi activity happening on Ether, I think that 
actually for a lot of uh, new observants that come into the space that I've noticed, at least, uh, you know, speaking with people in Singapore and Hong Kong, I noticed that they actually gravitate more toward Ether uh, when they first hear about both because they can say, okay, well, I hear about Ethereum and I hear that it's, it's benefiting from usage. Well, that, that's the same as, you know, when I own a commercial real estate building. You know, I benefit when my tenants do well. I benefit when these applications do well. I, I get that yield back. Whereas Bitcoin, it's, it's the gold analogy. You know, they all understand that too. But they also say, well, you know, the economy has outperformed gold uh, for 100 years or you know, something like that. So, so they, they, they'll end up buying both because they'll say, I, I, I see the merit for both cases. So with this new entrance of DeFi tokens, how has the three arrows or the Suzu thesis integrated or not integrated DeFi tokens, right? And, and DeFi tokens have a terribly inaccurate or undefined definition. But in, in my mind, I'm talking about like the most recent wave of tokens, as in like mainly Yiffy would be the ultimate DeFi token. Uh, MKR, count it as a DeFi token, but like we've had MKR, that's nothing new. And, and Comp, pretty, pretty straightforward. I'm really interested in like these ultimate DeFi tokens that came out via liquidity mining, yield farming, uh, fair launches. Uh, and these are, these are all things that the Ethereum world are trying to learn and digest and integrate into how this fits into the greater Ethereum ecosystem. So how is, how is the Three Arrows Capital and this uh, Suzu attitude towards DeFi tokens? And how do you guys uh, fit those things into your, into your investment thesis? I think that the recent wave of DeFi tokens, uh, it, it really started with uh, Compound uh, launching yield farming or liquidity mining. And I think it's actually a very powerful concept that uh, it, it's in a way, it's proof of work from, from the users. And I think that what it's enabled is it's enabled uh, projects to really stress test what they've built and to have uh, a lot of interest in what they've built uh, very quickly. Um, I think Yiffy is profound because of its uh, zero pre-mine, right? Where Andre, he could have done it in a number of different ways. He could have raised that money, but he instead said, I'm going to release unaudited code uh, and we'll see what happens. And he had already had some track record, right, with people using his code for, uh, for uh, yield, yield aggregation. But I think it was quite novel for him to release that. And I remember, I mean, we're, we're one of the more active farmers in the space. Um, and I was speaking with one, one of the other big farmers. He's actually a, a big Bitcoin OG as well. And he was saying to me, like, he, he's had his team up for 48 hours reading the code, making sure it was safe to farm. And they said it's still not safe to farm because Andre had left a, uh, he had left a, uh, like the, he could mint infinite supply. So, so in theory, he could have dumped into the 98 to balancer pool and taken everyone's money uh, if he had wanted to. So in the end, you had to trust him also. So, so, so I, it's kind of fascinating the way that I think proof of work and, and, um, and like faith in the project and sort of the like the riskiness of it is kind of all tied together. So, so there's almost like a there's almost like a lionization of the unaudited platform now because if it's audited, then by definition almost it's too easy. You know, it's too easy to participate. And so as a result, you kind of had that very uh, very proof of work like price action where people were like, okay, I'm farming it, but I need to sell and get out, uh, and so on. So I guess this is kind of like one of my criticisms of, of DeFi and a lot of the altcoin space is I feel like it captures and it speaks to a lot of like the early Bitcoin activity, 
But Bitcoin's kind of graduating from like early proof of work, get in on unaudited code and, you know, kind of pump and dump this thing. Maybe it's a revolution, you hold it, but a lot of this stuff is like, you know, you're farming curve and dumping it. Like there's a lot of like, this is trader activity. This is why Three Arrows is participating in it. Like what do you, like, obviously you're optimistic about this space, but in this cycle, like how do you view these investments? Like how do you decide what's a shit coin and how do you decide what you're going to, you know, take advantage of now and dump for for Ether, and what do you what are you holding on to for the long run? Like, how do you make those decisions? I think the long term holds in the space are generally the ones that are becoming indispensable for the composability roadmap that that everything uses. So I think Ave we are publicly invested in uh, with framework, and I, and I think that that's a very good example of how. Almost everything now in DeFi touches Aave, and structurally, its coin distribution is very strong as well, which means that it's it's had a whole cycle and it's not very VC owned. I'm generally more more bearish or neutral on the VC owned DeFi tokens like Maker and Compound, uh, to to a lesser extent ZRX, but but mainly Maker and Compound because because they start out with this very high percentage pre mine for the VCs that bought the equity that later converted to tokens, they can almost never truly decentralize easily because for that to happen, the VCs would have need to need to sell huge amounts, but it's very hard to sell huge amounts of any token as everyone figured out in 2018, no matter how high the price is, as soon as anyone tries to sell 10% of it, it's gonna nuke 80%, right? So it's, it's kind of the situation where they need to decentralize for it to really accrue value, but then it's very difficult to do. Uh, and the reality is that that actually can be, you know, that code can be forked, uh, that that process can be done again, but better with a better distribution, right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, Reflexor Labs. Uh, I think they're making a maker. They're basically making a maker concept, except with uh, with ETH collateral only. I think that's interesting. I think also um, there's going to be a big push toward uh, fair launches in DeFi. Uh, but with these pushes, there's gonna be a lot of shenanigans that happen as well. So um, I would say that just because it's a fair launch to, to, does not mean it's a good long-term buy. I think it has to have combination of things. Uh, developer talent that's committed to the project for ideological reasons, for, for community reasons. And I think also has to solve a product market uh, use case. Uh, so with Yiffy, I think it's pretty clear that uh, it can become the the smart the the smart money account that people use. Uh, sort of what I think Dharma would have wanted to be a couple of years ago, but just it would compose very quickly and efficiently with everything that's available in the space. Uh, so a cool example of this was like when when uh, Yiffy had a fork, right? They had YFII. Uh, Andre, he made a vault to basically yield farm this and then sell it back into uh, currency to, to then re-yield farm even more. And that's something where uh, it's, not, it's not very easy for new projects to come through and just say, I'm gonna do the same thing as that because you need kind of all the pieces to be in place uh, at that time. And so I like things with that that are indispensable and that have some a bit of a moat. So I think SNX is another example of that where we, have uh, a very strong community uh, where a lot of the token distributions of other coins are now tied with the SNX distribution. Right? Some of the largest CRV holders 
are the biggest SNX holders because they were the first early adopters of Curve. Uh, so I think that that kind of a web means that you want to own the things that are part of this web. So what about the valuation of these DeFi tokens, right? So like Yiffy and Comp and, and you know, mainly these governance tokens, which govern over the protocol, it's kind of just like implicit that at some point people will have access to cash flows, right? Well, the only place that that's written down is like speculation on Twitter, right? No one actually knows that that's going to be the case. Uh, or do you think that this like theoretical valuation of these tokens that have access to some future cash flow is that the likely outcome, or or is that just like a, a naive assumption that we're all kind of sheeps to to make bets on? That's a really good question. I I think that that's even a question people ask in the stock markets, right? Where it's like, when will Netflix ever make a profit, or when will like you know, these things ever make a profit? Um, I, I kind of see it both ways. On the one hand, there is a good thesis, which is that a lot of this aggregation theory stuff, if the fees go higher, then people will move to something else because they'll say, I don't want to pay this high fee. right? So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Curve when they try to put in an admin fee on, on swaps because you know, here you have mStable, which we were also investing in in the seed, where there's a fixed cost to swap that, which may now be lower than the cost on Curve. So will people all just go toward mStable? They, they probably might if they're cost sensitive, right? So there's kind of an upper bound on how high you can make that fee. And also a question of, you know, with the amount of tokens that are being distributed as an overlay for everyone to do the things that they're doing, that's kind of what's paying for everything, right? But if those token values drop or if the activity on these networks drop, then that creates sort of the... Uh, like the rubber band back where then all the capital flows back out of these and into other things. Um, I think those are all real risks because at the end of the day, only a handful of these have true, I think, merit and economic activity. And there are going to be a lot of copycats coming out soon uh, that don't have any of that, but want to give the public the appearance that they have it. Right. And, and that I think will get really dangerous too, especially when it's combined with the unaudited code nature of some of these, uh, where people can put in back doors to just siphon all the funds and then say, oops, I, I'm sorry, but it was back, you know, it's unaudited. So that part of it definitely scares me. And, and it's already getting to the point where I think it's, it's not too far from, from some of those costing people a lot of real money. But ultimately, I, I do think that it is very much a paradigm shift in the sense that these tokens ultimately are governing uh, real economic use cases of blockchains, I think, uh, whether that's swapping between stable coins with each other or swapping between Ether and each other. And I think the wrapped BTC, uh, REN BTC, the migration of BTC onto Ethereum, I think is very important as well, because uh, there you have a much smoother way to do all these kind of economic activities, productive activities, uh, productive finance. So, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up BTC. I've been liking some of David's posts about BTC being put into Ethereum. Uh, personally, for me, like I've been talking about Ethereum potentially being like a platform layer for Bitcoin, layer two for Bitcoin. And it appears as though DeFi is kind of emerging as like almost like an exchange competitor built on, you know, as like an open source, uh, you know, uh, 
version of like an exchange of of exchange infrastructure um like where do you see i I know you said like ethereum kind of captures that but a lot of the assumptions around like how ethereum captures that value beyond uh speculation kind of has to do with ethereum 2 and proof of stake and like uh eth burning as eip 1559 kind of is a thing like can you talk about like where the risks in like the Ethereum roadmap? Like personally for me as kind of maybe an Ethereum naysayer, like I just see so much uncertainty in that future. And like, there's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not set in stone by any means. Definitely not. And, and I, I think Ethereum can be credibly attacked. I think from, from both sides of the debate, I think one is from the other layer ones and I'll get to that in a second. And then first is from the Bitcoin side. I think that from the Bitcoin side, probably the most valid part of that debate is just the 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 sort of uh, fuzzy governance that Ethereum does and its ability to handle breaks in the future. Because I do think Ethereum is unforkable now because of the way that things depend on it to run. Uh, it's not going to be able to do a do-over like it did in 2016. So I think that um, because of that, there's very high stakes stuff now happening on Ethereum that that um, it may or may not be ready to handle as a platform. And there are a lot of concerns that the application layer is running far ahead of what Ethereum is capable of, whether that's through gas, uh, you know, gas usage, gas costs, what, you know, whether that's how things are getting deployed. So there's a lot of flash crash risk that uh, is building in the markets uh, from that point of view. And there's also a lot of uh attack vectors that people maybe haven't thought about but but could happen as well i would say that's probably the biggest risk i see for ethereum and then how its governance will be able to handle that i don't think it's as credible where the bitcoiners say that like the supply is you know no one knows the, the supply and these kind of things i agree with Udi who, who pointed out that they don't they don't care that much about what the exact supply number is because that's not a meme that matters to them whereas they do see it as you know minimum needed uh, issuance and to put in things to not have more issuance. Uh, so I think for me, those are the biggest concerns that I would have, which is just that it's it's governance layer is is very opaque sometimes, right? Where you have the prog pow issue come up again and again, uh, progressive POW algorithm change, and no one knows how to reject something in Ethereum correctly, right? And no one knows how to do something quickly in Ethereum uh, where that may be needed. Um, and I think that brings me to like the critique of Ethereum from the other side, which is that I do think it's essentially failed as the world computer. I think that the world computer meme is kind of dead. Uh, and I think that unfortunately it, it, a lot of the early Ethereum projects that came in because of that meme, they're now realizing like, you know, it cost me hundred dollars to deploy my contract. It cost me, you know, it cost my user $60 to do this, you know, this and that. And I think that uh, for that reason, we're we're also pretty bullish on another layer one called Polkadot, where the idea is that applications would have their own app chains, and then they would have shared security with each other, and also be able to bridge toward Ethereum and Bitcoin. And and that way, to the extent that blockchains can be useful for applications, you can imagine that the uh, app designers uh, are not subject to random gas costs. Right, they're not having to compete for the next block with the hottest DeFi apps uh, where, you know, that whole architecture doesn't really make sense for an internet 2.0 kind of concept, right? Like 
how can you know a non-financial application compete with financial ones or how can these kind of things happen so i think the the future is very multi-platform uh just like a lot of finance itself is and technology is now because they're ultimately going to be different use cases that pop up ethereum's credibility will ultimately be challenged if its head start is not enough to protect uh its network effects right if it turns out that some of these newer platforms uh can build killer apps that bring in you know 20 million real people not not talking about crypto people but actual people who don't even know that it's blockchain uh then i think that a lot of stuff that is happening on ethereum will naturally migrate very quickly to other things but uh with that said that's not a base uh conception that we think is a is a likely uh, because I think the network effects that Ethereum has built um, ultimately are quite strong and their trust assurances are are quite strong as well whereas the trust models of the new layer ones ultimately are not stress tested ultimately you know the question of civil attack on a lot of these it's, it's ultimately not that tested so I think uh, that will need a lot of time to play out and ultimately it may still not be used for highly uh, financialized transactions where there's a lot of risk if it doesn't go through. Don't feel fair to not answer this if this leaks too much alpha, but when it comes to making trades or just your general economic activity, is it on centralized exchanges or is it in DeFi? It's both for us, right? I mean, we're one of the biggest traders on centralized exchanges, uh, mm. even now, um, derivative exchanges like BitMEX, Deribit. Uh, but but we're also one of the largest traders now on DeFi. Uh, not not on just the uh, I, I would say less on sort of buying and selling and, and speculating, but more just sort of arbitrage trading and uh, liquidity providing. I think that as a, you know, if I were starting out today as a as a fresh trader, I would be doing myself a huge disfavor if I did not see what DeFi was off, was offering right now in opportunities, right? Just in terms of being to earn a yield, being able to earn dollar value PNL. Um, I, I think it's unprecedented actually. Um, there's, there's a lot of opportunities in the space if you know where to look. Um, you know, I, I was just interviewing a kid. He's a young Malaysian kid. He, he turned 5K into 1 million this year, you know, and, and that that's in university. Uh, so it, it's, it's stuff where for for people who really want to, you know, do their research and 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 see what's happening in the space, I think there's tremendous opportunity. Uh, it, it's not that dissimilar, I guess, to 2016, right, where you know there are people who earned hundred dollars on an airdrop and then turn it into a million. Uh, it's it's kind of like that that part of the market is coming back, which I think, you know, some would say it's like animal spirits, but I think it's one of the most exciting parts of crypto, which is that aspect of if you do your research as a young person. Uh, with an open mind, then you can make a lot of money. I, I think that's one of the best parts about crypto. And I do know that it comes at the cost of a lot of other people, but that that kind of equality of opportunity is is what I think matters. So and like, you mentioned the the go for it, Christian. I was gonna I was gonna jump in. Like Kyle on this show talked about like what draws traders anywhere is the ability to arbitrage, right? And uh and DeFi offer right now is absolutely offering like an unprecedented opportunity. Like it, like you're saying, every single person I know that is like not a Bitcoin maximalist that's like a trader, like is is like you know jumping in head first. Like they're really they don't care. Um, you know, yeah. th there's just too there's too much of an opportunity. But like that opportunity, like 
it I don't think it's sustainable, right? Like, and then after that opportunity is gone, is there still demand for this niche area? Like, obviously you think so. Like, why am I wrong in thinking that this is just a niche thing for a small group of people that, you know, want to trade? And obviously there's a, an opportunity now, but, you know, just like 2017, that was fleeting. I think the big difference between 2017 and now is that 2017, most of stuff didn't even hit a mainnet. It didn't even get a single user, right? It was just vaporware. Uh, whereas now stuff is launching immediately and then people are using it and deciding if it's useful after the rewards or not. Um, one of the interesting things you can see is that even after a protocol is no longer the best opportunity in terms of a yield farm or in terms of an ROI, people still use it. People still have a lot of capital on there. So that kind of stickiness, I would, I would say it's more analogous to when Uber subsidized rides in the beginning, as opposed to, you know, just kind of a, uh, like an ICO hype wave. I, I think that if you look at the underlying concepts as well in DeFi, they're much more sound in terms of what they're trying to achieve and then whether they're able to do it on, a, on blockchains, right? I think the 2017 model was like very decentralized the world. Like we're going to do all these crazy things, you know, put, put like food on the blockchain, all this kind of stuff. And this time it's very granular and very specific. It's saying, you know, we're going to take these crypto native assets and be able to do this kind of trading against them. We're going to do this kind of borrow lending against them uh, or this kind of a more efficient way to swap assets. It's getting very technical where products are differentiating themselves based on attributes and based on trade-offs. Uh, and so I think that the level of discourse is much higher than, than that for the base DeFi projects that are coming out now. I think similar to how the earliest Ethereum projects were also quite sound, generally speaking, despite being probably overambitious relative to what they were. My, I do share your fear that I think there will be a next round of DeFi that will be possibly like BitConnect 2.0 on blockchains. Because some of this yield farm stuff does have some of the same psychological aspects as BitConnect does, people will find these indistinguishable. They will not know the difference between curve or compound yield farming and BitConnect 2.0 yield farming. Because at the end of the day, it'll all just be a percentage ROI to them. Uh, that, that I think, or just hex, right? Which has gone up a lot. So ultimately, who is to say at this point? It's kind of one of those things that, uh, yeah. I mean, but, but I think that that's inevitable with any kind of massive productivity gain uh, boost because you'll always have uh, people that see that growth and then say, I, I want to you know, scam off of it using a second one or I'm, I want to do this. I see that as inevitable and ultimately unavoidable in any kind of progress. Yeah, so you mentioned that you have been participating in yield farming and yield farming has come in so far a bunch of different flavors, like starting with comp and moving on to balancer and then also with Yiffy and then with yams. So when you evaluate your choice as to whether you participate in yield farming or not, like what do you look at? What are the big variables that make yield farming lucrative or not lucrative? I think the biggest is just who are the developers? What is the quality of the code? What is the roadmap of the project? I think those are really important. Um, and does it have a goal that, that is interesting? Do, you know, does it have uh, risk involved uh, that are incalculable. So, so I think that um, YAM is an interesting one because obviously it did end up having a lot of uh, a, a 
lot of issues. But um, I think the idea is quite sound, actually. Um, and I'm a big fan of yams. I, I think that when, when Ample Fourth first came out, that was, I think, last year. And then it proceeded to dump like 90% in market cap. And then this year, it's, it's rallied a, shit to, you know, a shitload. And it's coming off now. But, but the idea of Ample Fourth, I think, is interesting. Uh, but it's ultimately a Ponzi game, right? Because you need more money to come in for it to sustain its price. And there's also like a big percentage team allocation as well. Uh, but, but interestingly enough, what, what kind of caused Ampleforth to do well this year was their, inter, their uh, introduction of a concept called the geyser, where you could put Ample and Ether into a Uniswap pool, and then the protocol would pay you uh, emissions of more Ample to be in that pool. So you're kind of back stopping the, the price of Ample, where before there was no such backstop. So we would trade it like 20 cents for two weeks. And then like everyone would lose their amples. And then, you know, so 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 I think that that being the backdrop, I think then Yam was really cool because it kind of said, you know, also no pre-mine, that there's no dev, uh, there's no founder reward. And everyone who gets this would be, you know, people who hold not stable coins, but risky crypto in the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So Ether, uh, wrapped Ether, and, uh, you know, Maker or Comp or SNX. And so, you know, that's why you saw massive amounts of value flow into these stake drops, because I think about 500 mil at the high flew into these. Because, you know, a protocol like that, which then had the added feature of having a 10% uh, fee on positive rebases, I think something like that is very powerful as like a community fund or a public goods fund, right? I could imagine that being very powerful uh, at funding, you know, Gitcoin funding uh, public development on Ethereum. So I think that these kind of concepts are ultimately games uh, that people play with money. But in the real world, people also play games with money, right? They, they also play craps and they also play lotteries. And, and I think here it's like a no loss lottery almost with, with, with Yam. You know, if you don't want to buy it, you don't have to buy it. You can, you can earn it uh, from staking. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, so unfortunately, Yams uh, has come and gone, at least Yams V1 has, due to uh, a bug in the system that connected governance to the treasury, right? And so as you just mentioned, anyone who farmed Yams lost the value of the Yams that they farmed, but they didn't lose any of their capital that they deployed. So that's an important differentiator there. However, uh, Yams doesn't, in my opinion, and from what has gone on with the, the team that has issued it, Yams doesn't seem to be completely dead. Um, do you believe in a rise from the ashes of Yams? Definitely. I, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, interest in Yams still because of the reasons I outlined and, and also other ones. Uh, I think the migration will, will certainly happen. Uh, it's just a matter of time. And I think there'll be a a lot more careful this time because they know that even more people are watching and that there's a lot of community interest in this. I think their Gitcoin re reached this target in 70 minutes or something, 60 minutes. So that's obviously a good sign as well. Um, so it's, I, I mean, I think it's a very powerful concept uh, where you have a community-owned ample for it, basically a community-owned game that uh, you know I can imagine people paying each other in yams. Uh, I can imagine a lot of cool stuff happening on yams. That's uh, that's it. It's quite native to Ethereum itself, I think. So. Yams are the new Doge, right? Yams are this this beloved just uh, currency that's kind of a meme that everyone just accepts, in my opinion. Um, you yeah. mentioned games, and we we and I've been talking about the concept of like money games for a while. And I think to wrap this up, I kind of want to 
get your take on something uh, on this this aspect, even though I'm not really about to ask a question. But we saw yeah the yield farming with compound and it would it, compound invented that right well synthetics maybe invented it even before that but then uh, compound really made it coherent and integrated like the token that governs over the protocol ampleforth introduced the rebasing mechanism um yiffy uh, invented this like easter egg hunt of returns around crypto and around DeFi, and then yams leveraged that right and so we have these different moves we have these different like uh, valid moves that you can make and and especially with yams yams really was just like these three valid moves that you could make and then stitch into one single application my one of my bull cases for ethereum and DeFi over the next two years is that there are a lot more mechanisms that we haven't figured out yet and a lot of creative developers are going to stitch these things together in some platypus like fashion in order to make this mechanism that's another game and really all of Ethereum is and all of DeFi is, is a place to like seek returns, right? And each player has their own play style where you can go and get really safe returns by basically buying Ether with a plan to stake as like the ultimate safe asset. Or you could do something super speculative like buying yams on the secondary market after yam v1 crashed without any assurances that yam v2 or, or v3 are ever going to be a thing. So when it comes to evaluating games in Ethereum and DeFi over the next two years, like, are you thinking about this concept and like, how, how do you expect this to play out? Definitely. I think you made excellent points there and I agree with almost all of them. I, I think that on top of that, there's so many games you can play with mainstream people, right? That don't even know about crypto where you could have people's Facebook addresses, Instagram, Twitter, where they can use this and claim crypto that then they play a game with. You could do a lot of other stuff if, if, if gas slow enough um, that uh, make it a very social thing. I think that if 500 mil can go into a staking for a, a, a new idea, then you know we could see a, the next large stake uh, with normal people be 20 billion, 10 billion, 100 billion. These are all possible numbers, I think, uh, if you get uh, a truly cool game, a, a truly cool concept. and. I think that will be what really takes mainstream media by surprise too. When you know there's a headline like, you know, ten billion dollars went into a stake drop for some 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 new coin. So, what those mechanisms will be, I think people are thinking about very carefully now, and and how that will look. But I think in general, they'll they'll like you said, they'll they'll have a very uh, speculative mentality to it. It will be the opposite of the Bitcoin hodl mentality, which I think is what people do as well uh, with some percentage of their money. But the the social nature of money is also to speculate, right? It's to, it's why we play poker. It's why we gamble. It's why we, you know, and you see that in the stock market as well. You see that in everything, right? And and so I think those animal spirits actually will, will be very powerful for Ethereum because Ethereum is fundamentally very social and it's fundamentally very uh, connective of people to do these kinds of things. Sue, thank you for coming on the show, man. Uh, a lot of things I don't necessarily agree with, but uh, it, when <laughs> smart people say things that you don't agree with, you sometimes it's good to be humble and just uh, and and just listen. So it's great to get to pick your brain on uh, a myriad of topics here and and kind of like what's going into what the three arrows is doing. Yeah, before you jump off, where do you, where can people find you and who do you want to hear from? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at zhusu. And uh, I'm not sure about 
who I want to hear from. You you mean on your show or you mean in general? Yeah, yeah. If our listeners, uh, if who are of our of the vast crypto audience, are you interested in hearing opinions from or or people that um, I don't know? It's an open ended question. You can say I think the, I think the Yam found uh, I think the Yam devs. Uh, if you can get them, be cool. I also want the Yam devs. I'm in line. <laughs> All right, Sue. Thanks for coming on the pod. Really appreciate it. All right, take care. Follow the show, POV Crypto Pod. You guys can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Bankless. Christian? Yeah, you guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Also, check out at Bitcoin Magazine for all your favorite Bitcoin goodies. Um, David and I are going to be doing a few less shows every single week for the next few uh, weeks as we uh, do... Do a little bit of transitioning, but uh, you should be expecting uh, back to two shows a week very soon. Thanks for watching, y'all. Peace. Three weeks. Three weeks.